assim mesmo seja. Well, last night, uh, if you were like me, you were uh, awakened by a storm. Uh, came in loud, came in fast, but as quickly as it came in, it left. I don't know if you noticed that. And such are some of the seasons of this life that are difficult. Spiritually speaking, storms that come in, they come in quickly, they leave quickly. You may have had several of those even just this week, but there are, there are storms, there are spiritual storms that last for long seasons. That's what we encounter today in Psalm 13. Psalm 13 is a the psalm about lasting affliction and despair and the uncertainty of the days of lament in this psalm drive the psalmist and in our seasons they drive us to the end of ourselves. And in this the Lord uses this affliction to draw out the faith of the psalmist and in the same way he uses the affliction to draw out the faith of his people. The Lord has a way of bringing out that faith, doesn't he? Even with the unbelievers that he encountered or new believers. You know, the people that were at the end of themselves and they came to Jesus and they found exactly what they needed. One particular story that may be my favorite, one of my favorites at least, in all of the scripture is the Canaanite woman who came to Jesus because her daughter was afflicted. And uh, when she came, she was not met with reception. In fact, Jesus, in so many ways, sort of gave her a reason to turn away, spoke to her in ways that we would just, frankly, we would call them rude. And yet she persisted. Even the disciples were like, man, get her out of the way. She is bothering us while you're trying to do your work. And she persisted and she came to the conclusion that she would take crumbs from the master's table before turning away. The Lord Jesus drew out her faith in that difficult time. The Lord Jesus draws out the faith of David, the psalmist, here in Psalm 13, the very same way. To remind you, we're in a series called Salvation Belongs to the Lord, Faith in Times of Trouble. So I want to read Psalm 13 to you. We'll pray and continue. Hear the word of the Lord. How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Father, we pray once more that your Holy Spirit would illuminate the truth of your word, showing us Jesus, 
more clearly that we may be transformed. Father, do these things according to your grace, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Title this morning is, It's Time for Faith. It's time for faith. And the theme I would give you for today, the fires of affliction refine faith in the God who fully saves. The fires of affliction refine faith in the God who fully saves. And I want to give you an explanation on that fully saves part. Because we often reduce our salvation, especially if we're in the midst of affliction, we reduce it to getting out of certain circumstances. Unfortunately, people view their own salvation that way as well. Well, it's simply getting out of the effects of my sin. No, that's not salvation. That's just a part of salvation. See, what God does is far more than just remove circumstances. He saves us to things that we will spend eternity enjoying, unfolding. We will spend eternity discovering these things that he has saved us to. Well, keep that in mind as we walk through this. We'll revisit the thought, but the fires of affliction refine faith in the God who fully saves. I want to give you three occasions for faith from this text. Three occasions for faith. Number one, it's time for faith when circumstances cloud our perception. Verses one and two. You know, how long is the recurring reference here? The, the recurring question, actually, four times he says this. It's not bad to repeat. You know, oftentimes we, we joke about songs. I've heard them called 7-Eleven songs. You sing the same seven words 11 times in a row, right? Repetition is not bad, especially when it comes to prayer. Some of you may feel like you pray the same things over and over again. That's not bad, but... Vain repetition is bad. And so the psalmist here is saying this question over and over again, four times in a row. How long? How long? And you see David, the writer here, is in deep despair and has been for some length of time. So his patience is being stripped away. His faith is being put to the test. He's awaiting much-needed deliverance, and he knows his only help comes from the Lord. But I want you to notice his perception as he writes these couple of verses. Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? See, perception has a lot to do with how we respond in our circumstances. You know, I think about uh, driving at night. I know it's weird, but I'm 36, and I can already see the effects of my vision deteriorating when I'm driving at night. I notice it in my depth perception. So I end up seeing things, and they're actually not as far off as I thought they were, and so I end up breaking, say, at the stoplight. I end up breaking a little too late at the stoplight. I'm not in danger. Don't worry, okay? But I notice these little changes in my perception at night. My eyes are not capturing reality. And I would say spiritually, our, our circumstances, they block our ability to understand all that is going on. 
spiritually, we start to get this tunnel vision. I can only see what is immediately around me, my circumstances, the things I'm trying to get out of. It's in these moments that our perception is clouded. And I think you see that in a couple of ways right here. Our perception, just like David's, we feel forgotten and abandoned. Notice, the question is not, are you going to forget me? That's not what David asks. He says, no, will you forget me forever? So David's past the point of God forgetting him. He's already convinced the Lord has forgotten him. And so the question is about full-on abandonment. You know, many prayers and psalms call upon the Lord to remember us and to not forget us. Remember your covenant. Be faithful to your people. You've been faithful before. But it seems now David is so low that he's even lost the ability to appeal to the Lord's covenant faithfulness or loving kindness. He doesn't even appeal to it. He has simply come to the conclusion, I have been forgotten. But God, is this going to last forever? He accuses, essentially, the Lord of intentionally ignoring his plight, purposefully turning his back on his child. How long will you hide your face from me? Plummer says here, think of Job. This is what he says, Job's Misery reached its height when he said, Oh, that I knew where I might find the Lord. Behold, I go forward, but he's not there. I go backward, but I cannot perceive him on the left hand where he doth work, but I cannot behold him. He hideth himself on the right hand that I cannot see him. Job was there. David was there. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you are there, but it's that point at which the spirit we're promised in Romans 8 helps us by groaning in ways that are too deep for words. Psalm 13, that's a short psalm. We've got two verses here, and I'm guaranteeing you that somebody in the midst of deep and lasting affliction can barely even utter these phrases to God in prayer, and yet the spirit intercedes in ways that we can't understand. It's that bad. It's that low. So he feels, and maybe sometimes we feel, forgotten and abandoned. But also another matter of perception, he feels alone and defeated. So the distance of God opens the door to the internal struggle of doubts. The internal, I guess, running through scenarios and anxiety and and worry. And I would say for you on this, a caution. Because when you get to that point, when you start to turn inward as David here does, you ought not feel so confident. It ought to scare you if you feel confident about your own solutions when the Lord seems silent. If you start looking inward for comfort, for solace, For relief, it will only ultimately result in pain. But he says, 
How long must I take counsel in my soul? Have sorrow in my heart all the day. This is the internal dialogue between faith and unbelief. It's the wrestling with circumstances, expectations, and trusting God in the fire. This is the mentally, emotionally, and spiritually exhausting confusion of the afflicted Christian. He feels alone and defeated. He says, how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? For David, maybe this was dissenters or other kings that seem to be casting a a long and big shadow. But for us, the enemy might be other people, maybe even people among the people of God. But more often, more often, it's Satan and his demons. It's the schemes that cater to our sinful flesh. Just to be real honest, we'd be Christian in our society. I would say the schemes of Satan usually have to do with the fallout of prior sins committed. And the enemy uses to grasp at some sort of victory over the believer. Have you not, even recently, maybe, maybe succumbed to the temptation that your sins have not truly been forgiven, that God is holding them against you? This is the work of Satan, the accuser, to try to convince you you stand condemned. If you're not a believer, you certainly stand condemned. But believer, if you've experienced the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus, you are free from that condemnation. This may be the way you are afflicted, and maybe it's a way you have been afflicted for a very long time. He says, I have sorrow. He's downcast, hopeless, all day. It characterizes long seasons where everything is shaded by this bleak, hazy, gray color where you can't see life or your circumstances rightly. It's the persistent weight of affliction and the seemingly endless inner turmoil that amplifies our need for God's salvation. We may identify with some sorrows. We may run through them in application, but I would rather we rest our thoughts on the man of sorrows. We experience a bit of affliction. We see our circumstances. So why don't we turn our attention to the the one who has experienced the worst circumstances? Jesus, the man of sorrows, experienced the deepest measure of affliction. In fact, it's infinite. The deepest measure that can be experienced by one person, it was only experienced by Jesus. And he cried out in the midst of that affliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So we feel as though we've been abandoned, yet he was. We feel as though we are afflicted to the point of death, yet he was. He was abandoned, so we are not. 
He was forsaken, so we are not. He was punished, so we are not. He was crushed, so we are not. He was pierced, so we are not. And any of this that we feel in this life, we should consider that a blessing. To get to share in his suffering, and our suffering, even our suffering has a definite limit. It is a quick end. This vapor of a life, your affliction for weeks or months or years, again, as we learned last week, will seem like nothing compared to the weight of glory. Our affliction will have eternal value because he was afflicted for us. In preparation, I was thinking, you know, I'll get to Jesus at the end, but I was convinced that we must see him in these two verses. And we continue a second occasion for faith when victory seems out of reach. Verses 3 and 4. When victory seems out of reach, here's where the desperate petitions come. Here's where the gut-wrenching prayers come. Faith leads us to cry out for salvation, so we cry out for a couple of things. First off, for our good. He simply responds, consider and answer me, O Lord. You get this? Turn your attention to my suffering. Turn your face to me in the midst of my circumstances. We are motivated to cry out for salvation because we know ultimately salvation is good for us, right? That's what he's asking for. Don't let me die. Don't let me be overcome by my enemies. But we know well, all right, we know well, but we don't know well that rescue from circumstances is only part of God's saving work. God doesn't simply intend to help us out of the pit. He intends to make us just like him. So these seasons of utter despair render all the impurities in us. They, they come to the top. It's the dross that is removed. And Plummer says, well, here, there must be, get this, there must be a great deal of dross even in good men to make daily and long-continued sorrow necessary to their sanctification. So we say, yes, salvation is good, but as he continues, he says, that which is good for us is that which makes us pray. It is better to be praying in the whale's belly than asleep in the ship. So there are things that are good for us. We cry out for our good, our ultimate salvation, but we must remember what God intends to be good for us in the midst of our affliction. So we cry out for our good, but we also cry out in deep suffering for our life. So as far as David is concerned, these cries come from the perspective that his end awaits him. It's as if we will die if we do not behold his face in peace 
and in righteousness. And so he says, light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Jesus said in Matthew 6, the eye is the lamp of the body. You know, sometimes you get up and you look in the mirror and you can just see in your eyes like how tired you are. That was me this morning. And if you looked at me in the eyes, you probably said, man, he must have slept terrible. I needed some like under eye cream or something today. But you know how on occasion you can, you can almost see people's experiences in some way in their eyes, or as you look into their eyes, you can see that they have suffered much, or they have endured much, or they're carrying a burden. I believe that's what Jesus is tapping into, and certainly David is tapping into when he says this. You can see the eyes hollow, empty, telling of experiences. He asks for his eyes to be lit up by life, full of hope full of joy, full of a future, full of the things that have been stripped from him. And so following this, Jesus, Matthew 6, says, if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. And this is the end to which David prays now. He knows death is looming. But if God would just shed his light on him. There's the same light of the gospel which restores us. 2 Corinthians 4. That God has shown in our hearts the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So when victory seems out of reach, we cry out for our good, we cry out for our life, and God meets that need in Jesus but there is a third occasion for faith here. We need faith when faith is all we have. Verses 5 and 6. David recovers. And maybe you see how this psalm, as short as it is, as, as afflicted as he seems, it almost ascends to a place of faith once again. David recovers, and so we may say, no, his circumstances didn't change from verses 1 and 2 to verses 5 and 6. He was still in the midst of his affliction. He had his perception corrected, though. He really gained God's perspective in the matter. So through his communion with God, verses 3 and 4, his prayer, he realized his faith was rightly placed in the only God who fully saves Leopold says, faith has climbed out of the lowest depths of despair where it had well nigh perished into the full sunlight of godly hope. Some we must remember here, though, faith by itself, apart from its object, is shaky at best. It's condemning at worst. To say that we have faith just as a virtue does not accomplish anything. To say that you have faith does not resolve your problems. To say that you have faith doesn't actually bring salvation. It is the object of our faith that matters. This is the reminder we always need Christians. We always need this reminder. 
Faith rightly placed in the God who saves is what is important. So faith by itself is, by itself is shaky, but faith in the saving God is surety. Faith trusts God's mercy. David knows that God is not actually distant or aloof, so his faith reigns in his feelings in order to ground him in the truth. That's important, folks. We believe the truth of God and then our feelings follow suit. God's mercy here cannot be lost on the believer. David is reminded of God's mercy as he reigns in his feeling. He trusts God's mercy. One commentator says, to the believing sinner or sufferer, how sweet is mercy. He lives by it. He hopes in it. He prefers it to all other sources of joy. Faith trusts God's mercy. He looks upon us in our condition and know he does not abandon us there. But also faith celebrates coming salvation. You see these things in verse 5 and 6. I have trusted in your steadfast love. You may render that mercy. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. So faith celebrates coming salvation. So believer, I'll tell you with voice here. Listen to this. If you are suffering from a sense of feeling abandoned by God, which is what this psalm is about, I cannot tell you when the oppression will lift but it will lift. The curtain of your despair will rise, and behind the veil you will see the blessed Lord Jesus Christ who has been with you and has loved you all the time. Faith celebrates coming salvation. And we may turn to the Bible itself. How does it conclude? Come quickly, Lord Jesus believing that he will do what he said he will do, which is return and set all things right. Faith trusts God's mercy. Faith celebrates coming salvation. And then faith sings upon recounted blessings. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Think about your favorite hymns. The hymns we sing, you know, maybe some of the best hymns were written in the face of the deepest affliction. I would argue that we sing better as Christians when we are afflicted, when we are persecuted, when we are struck down. David arrives here in faith saying, no matter what, I will sing to the Lord. He has dealt bountifully with me. Some of you who have smartphones, you have a setting, I guess, in your photos. I know the iPhone does this. You have a setting in your photos that on this day, you know, your memories will pop up on your screen and you can scroll through pictures of years past and all that kind of thing. Here's what happens. Our affliction serves as such to our faith. In our affliction, we are sent looking for the ways that God has been faithful and there is no end to that list. You get stuck on your circumstances 
When you experience that affliction, then go deep into what God has done for you. Go deep into the ways that he has dealt bountifully with you. The ways he's been patient with you, the ways he's shown his grace, all the ways he has displayed his goodness to you. Our faith sings upon recounted blessings. We need faith when faith is all we have, and that faith must be placed in this wonderful, saving God. As we conclude here, Henry says, It is some ease to a troubled spirit to give vent to its griefs, especially to give vent to them at the throne of grace, where we are sure to find one who is afflicted in the afflictions of his people and is troubled with the feeling of their infirmities. Do you see in the Lord Jesus, as we've been studying on Hebrews on Sunday nights, we have a faithful and merciful high priest who was made like us in all respects, tempted as at all points like we are, yet without sin. We have a Savior who for the joy set before him endured the cross and welcomes us into the irreversible, unstealable joy of God's salvation. We have a great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is worthy of all praise, who has dealt bountifully with us. Boyce notes about this psalm that the turning point is in verses 3 and 4. You see the affliction at the beginning? Verses 3 and 4. The affliction drives David to pray. And then in verses 5 and 6, there is a recovery of sorts. That turning point was the the prayer. It was the communion with God. And I would ask you, as we conclude this morning, what keeps you from crying out to God for his salvation right now? If you're lost... So much of what David speaks of right here, it really means nothing to you if you haven't come to faith in Jesus. So repent of sin, understand that Jesus is not simply the solution to your circumstances, but Jesus is the Lord himself, worthy of all of our faith, worthy of all of our praise, worthy of all our life has to offer. And so we live for him turn to him in faith and be saved but christian maybe you feel this affliction maybe you feel the distance of god now if you don't right now you will someday maybe you feel dry and empty spiritually what keeps you from crying out to god wrestling with him in prayer because of your affliction Are you willing to wrestle with him to the point of saying, I'm not going to stop this wrestling until I understand something, until I receive a blessing? You may come away with a limp, spiritually speaking, but you won't forget the Lord's faithfulness in the midst of your suffering. Cry out to him. Find rest. Find restoration in the gospel. 
today. Join me in prayer.